You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Say something like funny, unique, and then we can get started. You know I'm not funny or unique. Okay, well, then we'll just have to start um, like this. Hello. Hey, world. It's it's, listeners, it, it's hard sometimes to start this thing off. We, we tried obviously for the past like 100 episodes we've tried to start it <laughs> off as in like a normal conversation but of course we all are already talking to each other before we hit record mm-hmm. so uh, we yeah. use up all of our sometimes we use up all of our talking points or the things that we're talking about are not for the air yeah it's like is that personal yeah it's like this is my exact address it's my social security <laughs> And so just wouldn't be appropriate. Actually, our, our secret friendship handshake is repeating each other's social security numbers back and forth to each other three times under a full moon, of course. Um, why would you tell everyone that? Sorry. I know. Well, that's us. And this is two girls, one crossword, your favorite weekly podword crosscast. That is a fact. If it's not your favorite weekly pod word crosscast, we've got a lot of things to think about. We've got some priorities to set straight. There are some other pod word crosscasts. Actually, there's no pod word, other pod word crosscasts out there. There are crossword podcasts. It's different. Mm-hmm. Okay. We may or may not be rivals with one of them. Our mortal enemies, but also our best friends. Our best friends. <laughs> Brian and Ryan. How you doing, guys? <laughs> Brian, Ryan. You know, if our names rhymed things would be way different for us <sighs> sorry it's playing nothing wrong oh, on us yeah kelsey and chelsea or grace and trace i probably i actually prefer me being trace over you being kelsey because i have like an ego thing with anybody that has a name that's chelsea or kelsey i'm just like mm, immediately judgy and that's nothing against their personality it's just i'm sorry there's only room for one of us here that's that's your own issue that you'll have to unpack later. I refuse to unpack that one, but it is my own issue. I will admit. I actually could see you as a Trace. Trace is kind of cool. Like Tracy is fine for anyone oh. named Tracy, but Trace is a cool nickname. Trace. I like Trace. It reminds me of a, there's a Overwatch character called Tracer. Oh, He's yeah. He's a badass. I so. remember that TikTok sound. <laughs> um, anyway, that's us. There's two girls Shall- sticking it in a world here. Shall we jump into our Polapalooza? Polapalooza, take it away. So on Twitter, we asked our followers just a simple question. Favorite twins, question mark, question mark, twin emoji. Mm. And these are like twins from when millennials were growing up. Of course. Well, they still exist today, but Tia and Tamara, Mary Kay and Ashley, Mm. Lohan and Lohan, which I know is not a real twin, but for a while, I thought that she was a real twin. Mm -hmm. And then Dylan and Cole. From Sweet Life. Although there, I, I feel like I was slightly too old for Sweet Life. I, Cody, so I was never yeah. that into them. I was definitely slightly too old, but I had younger siblings. So I watched a lot of Sweet Life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the twins of my time were technically Mary Kate and Ashley and Lohan and Lohan. And like, mm-hmm. you know, T and Tamara, of course, but I was definitely on the younger end when Sister Sister was like a thing. Mm-hmm. I was more into the Mary Kate and Ashley and then the Lindsay Lohan Parent Trap, of course. Yeah, I love Parent Trap, but I also, okay, I'll just get into the results. Yes. First of all, no one voted for Mary Kate and Ashley or Dylan and Cole. Dylan and Cole, I understand, but I really thought Mary Kate and Ashley I know, would have. No. They were huge like, in like, like all their mystery VHS tapes. Is there like a stigma against the Olsen twins? In which case, y'all need to get your priorities straight. Don't judge. They've these. been through a lot. I mean, yeah. I don't feel bad for millionaires, but no, they were like working since they were three months old, basically. Literally. So I think no, six months, I think in some cases, I feel like child actors as adults can have like a slide here and there mm-hmm. because but Mary Kay and Ashley never really did anything that weird other than they kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And I think one of them married someone who was quite a bit older yeah. than her, but, but- they weren't really like, you know, Lindsay Lohan. Well, that's a different out story. Partying and doing. I wonder if Lindsay Lohan was really a twin, if she would have been kept more in check because mm-hmm. Tia and Tamara like never really, never did anything yeah. bad. But I also feel like they didn't hit superstardom like Lindsay Lohan or the Olsen twins did. Mm, I don't know. What 
I think it depends. Like in my age group, yes, sister, sister was huge and they were right. huge at that time. Yes. Um, but post sister, sister, like the, yeah. the, like Lindsay Lohan became like a huge teen star as well. And like mm-hmm. she went out to do like romantic comedies, et cetera. The Olsen twins, while they kind of dropped out of like film, they were huge in the fashion world, you know? Yeah. And teen Tamara, like, I don't know if they really did oh, much. My. Okay. First of all, yes. And it's Tamara. Sorry. Tamara was Do I keep co-host. saying Tamara? <laughs> yeah. Tamara was a co-host on The Real for a long time. Okay. okay. They both have Goes been. To show. They both have been in shows that maybe you're not the target uh, audience for it, but no, they, they have, they have okay. some credits. Actually, okay. Tia books more acting gigs than Tamara. Okay. It's this whole drama and there's conspiracy theories that they don't get along anymore. Blah, blah, oh. blah. And don't forget that their brothers, Taj, Taj. Yeah. Maury, who is yes. a smart guy, so true, true, successful true. family true. there. But Tia and Tamara won at 78% in yeah. this poll. And then Lohan and Goes Lohan show. got second place at 22%. I probably would have picked Lohan and Lohan. I picked Tia and Tamara because I, growing up, I really like Lohan and Lohan, but over COVID, they put um, Sister Sister back on Netflix mm. and I watched it through twice. The I outfits watch in that it. show are so fun, like quintessential 90s early 2000s outfits and they're always right. coordinating they're coordinated twins. yeah so I, like, that could be us yeah i definitely did not engage with t and tamara as much as i did with like the olsen twins which i mm-hmm. watched so many mary kate and ashley films my favorite was the one where they went to the bahamas and the one where they were in the they went to australia in the witness protection program i watched those mm-hmm. two movies all the time I watched more of their younger stuff. Like um, mm. it takes two. how the West was fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like the, when they were that yep. age, I did watch their teen ones, but not as much. Although I do watch a YouTuber who like goes through old movies and he's done a lot of the Olsen movies and they're all like basically just advertisements for different resorts that they stay in. Yes, It's very yes. obvious to watch. Like when you watch now. Yeah. Like the one in the Bahamas, they stay at the Atlantis, which yeah. I ended up going to the Atlantis, like for my uncle's wedding. And I was like, <gasps> this is where they were. I, I would watch those living my life. again. Oh, okay. We should put it's on the date. list. It's a date. Um, so yeah, that's twins. I also speaking special shout out to twins and books because I also loved the sweet Valley twins. That was like one of the first, cause they, that was know. one of the first chapter books I read when they were younger mm. and then there were sweet Valley high. And then they okay. actually did make a TV show about it, about them. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't what know if I ever read those. It's bad I'm twins, obsessed with twin sisters. Yeah. We, we've gone over this many, many times on this podcast. Our listeners are not surprised. Yeah, they're like, okay, we get move it. On. Move on. Speaking okay, of moving fine. on, should we move into our hits and shits? Yeah, we can move on. If that's what got, everyone's big screaming news. at us. I got big news. Yeah. What? Um. Okay, let me pull up my big news. Hold on. Give me a Uh-oh. second here. I know. I know. I'm the worst. Okay. <clears throat> Did you see the news recently? Have you been on the news? Have you seen the news? Read the... You need to be more specific. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stuff going on. Okay. Specifically related to episode 82, Birds of a Feather Clock Together, in which I talk about daylight saving times. Mm-hmm. As of March 15th, the Senate approved, um, like the measure the sunshine protection act, which essentially will standardize daylight saving time, Mm -hmm. like get rid of like the whole clock changing thing as of 2023, I believe it's also passed in the house, but we're talking, we were talking about this on episode 83 about why daylight saving was invented or like implemented. If you have not listened to episode 83 and you would like a spoiler alert, hashtag spoiler alert, it's capitalism. But it's seeming like it's going to get the axe. It's going to get the axe. It passed unanimously in the Senate, it went on to the House, and uh, Nancy Pelosi says she's looking at it and reviewing it very closely. But she's nobody got her knows. eye on it. She's, she's got, got her, got her eye. It. So just to say, big news in the world. Big news for the DST. The DST folks. Yeah. I mean, I'm this time when we lost the hour, I thought I had lost my life. That's how intense of a change it was for me this time. But I do like that. It's 
light. I know it's like the point is it's lighter. So people go out and spend money, but I do like that. It's lighter out. Cause it feels like I have more of my day. I know, but it doesn't need to be sunny at nine o'clock at night. It's not though. At nine. I feel like it is. Yeah. In the summer. All right. We'll see. <laughs> I feel like it's getting dark already. And it's six 30. Well, yeah, it's because it's still winter. Yeah. Okay. You know, we haven't hit the solstice yet. Um, but keep an eye out this summer. I will. June, July, 9 p.m. I'll be texting you and be like, see the sun? It's still up. We'll revisit this conversation in a couple months, listeners. <laughs> Just get ready. Something to look this, forward to. Yeah, this may be the last summer that you have outside with a sunny 9 p.m. So say goodbye now. Anyway, that's, that's, my, that's my big news for this week. That is, that's huge for you. It's huge. It's huge for all of us. Embrace it. Anyway, you want to you get into crosswords? You want to start us off? Sure. I guess I could do that. Okay. Um, well, this is, okay. So this is just me, me being dumb. The Monday, March 14th, New York Times by Stephen Hiltner. Hmm. Two down was blank, the cold, left stranded. And I thought it was put in the cold because mm. um, I had UTIN filled out. Mm. And then I was like, wow, that's an interesting <laughs> way to clue Putin, but then I realized it was out in the cold <laughs> later. So I was like, oh, okay, that's better. Uh, uh, I love it. And then I like 29 down dinosaur and Super Mario games, Yoshi. Mm. It was just Yoshi. cute. Yoshi. Uh, did you do any of the, the New Yorkers this week? I think I did. I love the New Yorkers. I'm just going to say it. I feel like I say it all the time, but I really love the New Yorkers. Um, the Friday, March 11th, New Yorker by Anna Schechtman, uh, 27 down, do business, question mark. The answer is beauty salon, like hairdo business. Very nice. And then this, which I didn't realize, I just, I love when they do this kind of stuff. Uh, 30 down, reality dating series called a, quote, riveting human rights violation, end quote, in a New York Times opinion piece. And the answer is Love Island. I just thought that was like really I'm like, oh, why do you hate Love Island so much? Um, it, it's got its quirks. Mm-hmm. I can't let myself get into that because I get sucked in easily. And Love Island's a, I've talked about this before, it's just a lot of episodes. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I can watch Love Island peripherally in that I will not sit and watch the seasons and I will not get invested in the characters and their relationships, but I will engage with content that I see elsewhere on the internet mm-hmm. because I think it's funny. Agreed. Entertaining. Um, speaking of love Island, I did not realize that the recent love is blind cast was all from Chicago. Yeah, they are. I mean, this is like not a realization as of yesterday. This is like a realization of weeks ago, but it's still like now I'm on TikTok, And since you kind of get fed location mm-hmm. oriented stuff, it's like people taking videos of shake and deep D and like all this Wait, shit. And did I'm you like, watch that? Watch the whole season? No, I didn't watch okay. any of the season, but I've seen so much. Now, of it you know, all the people, TikTok, I know all the people. There's, there's a really funny TikTok. I don't know if you saw, I liked it, but it was, you know how they added that voice memo thing on like hinge or whatever. I forget mm-hmm. which app oh, it yeah. is. Someone's like, people say dating me is, is like dating Shane. He's but like, I have no idea. Show. He's like, I have no idea who that is. But, and then it's like, that is not a flex. <laughs> no, um, I have a lot of thoughts on love is blind. Alex and I watched it in like two sittings. Cause it came oh. out like they did the first half and the second mm-hmm. half. Mm-hmm. Bonks. Lots of drama. Pre- I, I like the premise of the show because everyone lives in the same city. So like you actually see the relationships unfold versus yeah. some other reality shows like Love Island or Bachelor, where it's like, what are they going to do after the show? You know, right. it, it throws them into like the more realistic situation. Right. Um, I'm interested in watching some of the, like, there's like a love is blind Japan that got mm-hmm. really popular on TikTok, And I was like seeing some of it. And it's so vastly different than Love is Blind, let's say Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. Not to say one is better than the other, but I feel like I'd be more engaged in Love is Blind Japan than the Chicago one. Um, yeah. At least to sit and watch. Because I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm engaged in the Chicago one on social media. Yeah. I need eh, all the drama. You I need probably all know all you need to know. All the good stuff comes out after. Yeah. Anyway. anyway. Okay. Um, I have something. Or okay. do you have more from that puzzle? No. I liked the... March 15th, New York Times by Michael Lieberman. There were a lot of clues that I liked in here. 10 across, dogs, dogs. 
in quotes and it's paws. Mm-hmm. And I also love saying dogs for feet. I love saying that my dogs <laughs> she, are barking. She, she does. She likes to say <laughs> I that. I really do. Um, 42 across bird and Liberty mutual ads. It's the emu, which is crossword ease, yes. but I loved that cluing. Mm-hmm. 54 across reminder to arrive with good spirits, question mark. BYOB. It's nice, 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 nice. Um, and then, oh, 40 down, four-footed resident of the White House from 2009 to 17. It was Bo Obama, which but has really good letters. It does. But if you just read it, it looks like Boobama. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like 12 years old. That makes me laugh so much. I had that in my hits as well. And it reminded me of episode 47, Good Energy and Good Boys, where I talk about presidential pets. So that was such a good episode. Listen to that one. It's one of those fun ones. Some presidents had crazy pets out there. They, they say sure that. did. They sure did. And then on top of having all those great cluing, there was also a theme. So 58 yes. across or a good theme, 58 across awful or hint to the common element of 1723, 34 and 50 across. And the answer was it's the pits, which is fun. Yes. But then all the themed answers, it was green olive, casino floor, NASCAR track and concert hall because they all have pits. They all have pits. I liked the Friday, March 11th, New York Times by Robin Weintraub, uh, 27 across, non-committal, committal. Definitely, maybe. Yes. I liked that. Uh, 45 across, largest digit in a set. And the answer was big toe. <laughs> to some people. To some. Yes. There are some people that have larger toes elsewhere. Anyway. Longer uh, or larger, two different things. Anyways, not going to get into that. <laughs> Someone's a little sensitive. Anyway, uh, 10 down, kitchen gadget, also known as a Parisian scoop, melon baller, which makes me oh. really want to ball a melon. We could like buy like a melon, right? Mm-hmm. Melon ball it and then dump like juice and like vodka or something in it and like have like a, what you could do, oh, you'd freeze the melon balls. So they'd be ice <laughs> cubes. And then yeah, that'd be fun, a like cocktail. a watermelon cocktail. Exactly. Oh my god, I'm I'm hilariously smart. And then okay, twenty nine down. It rarely includes chains, and the answer is fine dining. That was fun. Forget everything you know, other than fine dining. True. 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 Um, I liked the Wednesday New York Times by Joseph Gangi. Gangi. Mm-hmm. I learned something. 10 down. What a flat B palm facing a nearby fellow stands for in ASL. It's his. Oh, oh. okay. I'm guessing it's B like boy. Ah. Like his. Mm-hmm. Um, 18 down. It's mind, all mind. Exclamation. The answer was or mm-hmm. another crossroadies mm-hmm. with fun. And then 46 down. Fine. Stay angry then. In quotes. The answer was be mad. <laughs> be mad. See if we care. Fine. Be mad. But then this did one of, you know, this is how, this is how you get me in the middle of this, um, grid was a duck. The black oh. squares made up a little duck. Yeah. So it was, there's a bunch of like throughout the puzzle, throughout the acrosses, it just said duck, duck, duck. And it was different words. It meant duck, like avoid shirk, take cover, bath, toy, mm. stoop down. And then at the very end, 67 across the final across clue in the bottom right corner said duck, duck, dot, 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 follower. The answer was goose. <gasps> Maybe it's some cute. people don't like that, but that's right up my alley. It's right up both of our alleys, especially, especially having like the duck grid shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's killer. Killer. I love a shape. We love a shape. And what else do I got here? The Saturday, March 12th, New York Times by Natan Last. I love Natan's puzzles. Natan does like a ton of puzzles for the New Yorker, but this is a really good Saturday one um, for the New York Times. 14 across substitute for coffee. The answer was non-dairy creamer. I was trying to think like substitute for coffee, like caffeinated tea, like blah, blah, blah. Non-dairy creamer. Very good. I liked seeing this answer in the puzzle. 27 across. 2000 Cisco hit with a rhyming title. Answer was thong song. Thong song. Yes. Thong, the thong, thong, thong. <laughs> um, and then, of course, a clue after my own heart. 30 across New Jersey's unofficial rock theme of our state's youth. 
Answers born to run. Baby, we were born to run. That is you. You were born to run. <laughs> Springsteen. Um, and then 39 across. I think you would like this one. Be plucky question mark. The answer is tweeze, of course. <laughs> that is nice. What else? Do you got anything else? Um, I like the USA Today puzzle on March 17th called Cracker Boxes by Erica Swing Woshkick and Kate Chin Park, mm-hmm. edited by Amanda Rafkin. Eight across signable arm covers is cast. <gasps> Fun. 29 across people who might use aquafaba instead of egg whites. Vegans. Yes. Three down response to who wants to run a bunch of boring errands. Not me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it for that puzzle. Cute. And that's, um, that's actually it for all my heights and shites. Okay. I'll, I'll close out my heights and shites with another New Yorker. This one by Elizabeth Gorski from Wednesday, March 16th. Uh, these are some fun ones. 33 across some noontime, noontime placements lunch orders. Nice. 37 across followers of final performances often on course cast parties. Oh, I wish I could go to a cast party. I know. I went to many cast parties in my high school time. Um, theater kids are weird. That's all I got to say. They're just weird. Fair. That's a fact. Um, that's all I got. That's all you got. That's all I got. It's time to coin, flip the baby. coin. Okay. It's time. It's been time. I'm flipping the coin now. <gasps> it's heads. Well, seems rigged, but okay. My turn. My topic comes from the Tuesday, March 15th, New York Times by Michael Lieberman. 17 across. Classic martini garnish. And the answer is green olive. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, Grace talked about this puzzle, talked about the theme. The whole theme was related to pits, things with pits. And yes, an olive does in fact have a pit and an olive is used in martinis. So we're talking about (laughs) martinis and other cocktail things today. Fun. It's been a while since I've done like a food or like food adjacent topic. So I'm kind of excited about this one. This is really your forte yes i, I feel like it. i could never do a food topic you absolutely could you should surprise me one day and just do like a random food topic one day you gotta find one that calls to you i feel like one that you could have done was spam if i hadn't done it you probably would yeah. have done a really good job with spam i don't know if you'd be interested in doing i mean you did baked alaska that was a good one true that was early on though it was early on but it was a good one before i found learned. my voice <laughs> Oh, I was just, okay. I was just trying every, anything, throwing anything to the wall and she see trying. what stuck. She was trying. It's, it didn't stick to her. It stuck for me. Anyway, mm-hmm. I got most of my information from vinepairs.com, which I also used them uh, when I talked about um, sommeliers. Mm-hmm. But today we're talking about cocktails. It's a whole thing. She can't um, stay away. I can't stay away. Uh, but I'm going to start with a quote from, I, I should have written this down. It's either from Vine Pears or from a Food 52 article. Mm-hmm. If you're interested, I have the links right to me. This is the quote. Quote, the martini with its basic ingredients and air of refined panache is one drink that cannot be outshone by the latest trends. From James Bond's widely recognized shaken, not stirred, endorsement to Ernest Hemingway's pronouncement in a farewell to arms quote I've never tasted anything so cool and clean they make me feel civilized end quote this gin-based beverage has been and will continue to be an iconic stalwart of the cocktail lexicon end quote okay have you ever had a martini I'm sure I have but it's not something that I order frequently mm, I my favorite liquor is gin Mm-hmm. or spirit i guess i don't know what the difference between a liquor and a spirit is but i like gin i drink a lot of liquor gin. i barely know her <laughs> it's true um so i i gravitate towards martinis because i think gin is awesome that's mm-hmm. my endorsement gin is awesome <laughs> and that's the topic folks <laughs> and that's it that's all she wrote okay so let's talk about the martini where does it come from so history of this drink is uncertain 
but there are a few origin stories and you can pick one, whatever tickles your fancy. I'll start with the first one. It points to a town called Martinez in California. Historians and town inhabitants alike claim that the drink was invented during the mid 1800s during the gold rush. I was like, what? It was invented in America. First of all, wild. It was invented in America. The story goes that a gold miner who had recently struck it rich decided to celebrate his good fortune at a local bar. He requested champagne, which they did not have. So the bartender insisted on concocting another beverage made from ingredients that they had on hand, gin, vermouth, bitters, maraschino liquor, and a slice of lemon. Thus, the quote Martinez special was born. The miner apparently so much enjoyed this cocktail that he tried to order it again in San Francisco, where, of course, the bartender had no idea what he was talking about. And so they had to kind of like make it together there. Um, And then after that, the Martinez special became so popular that it was included in the famous book, uh, The Bartender's Manual in the mid 1800s, which we'll get to the bartender's manual later and why it was famous. Mm -hmm. Another theory, according to Barnaby Conrad III, who is the author of the Martini and Illustrated History of an American Classic, claims that the drink was invented in San Francisco after a miner requested a pick-me-up in the city on his way to Martinez. Okay. But yet another theory says that an Italian bartender named Martini de Arma di Taggia invented the cocktail while working at the Knickerbocker Hotel in New York City before the outbreak of World War I. His recipe was dry vermouth, dry gin, and orange bitters. And yet another theory says that an 1863 Italian vermouth vermouth maker marketed their product under the name, the brand named Martini. So you can actually buy vermouth still under the Martini brand. If you Mm -hmm. see like a green bottle in a liquor store that says Martini, that's vermouth. And it's this brand. It's this guy. Um, And they named it after the director, Alessandro Martini. uh, And it has been said that this company was the first to bring the alcoholic beverage, the Martini, to the market. Which one is true? All none? (laughs) No idea. Like I said, this is like a pick your fighter situation. You can pick Uh which one you like the best. I kind of like the gold rush one where he's like, give me champagne. The bartender's like, let me do you one better. (laughs) And the Martini was born. Yeah, that's exactly how the conversation went, by the way. That was a really good reenactment. Thank you. You know, we talked about this, but I'm really good at um, (laughs) accents and like impersonations. So anyway, okay, okay. what is in a martini? The recipe of the martini has evolved over time. So I'll go over the traditional recipe first, uh, kind of like how it stands today. uh, And then some variations depending on your taste. A traditional martini contains gin, dry vermouth, and it's served extremely cold with a, either a green olive or a lemon twist. I personally like the olive. But gin mm-hmm. is really good with lemon too. So, I mean, I am not going to be picky. But the olive and you is eat, nice. And you eat the olive then? At the end, yeah. Okay. Some people I'm don't. I'm like, person. I used to not be an olive person. It's so salty and good. It, it's one of those oh, things you got to eat it like 20 times and then you're like, I'm on, I'm in. All right. I don't mind olive if it's in stuff like cut up in other stuff, mm. but just on its own raw like that after it's been manhandled by some bartenders <laughs> naked hands. I don't know. I only eat olives after they've been manhandled by a bartender's naked hands. So mm-hmm. I'll definitely eat yours. Okay. Anyway. Okay. So in the martini's earliest like variation, uh, the ratio of gin to vermouth was one to one, but the amount of gin has kind of increased over the years. And these days it's basically the ratio that is like to your taste, but it's usually more gin to vermouth. So you have mm-hmm. that gin, that earthy gin taste. A dry martini, if you order a dry martini, it contains less vermouth, while a dirty one includes dashes of olive brine, which I've never had a dirty martini, so I'm going to try it. Um, That's a cool drink to order. A dirty martini? You know. Yes, I know. Um, When you replace gin with vodka, it becomes a kangaroo. So you can have a vodka martini. Vodka and gin are very similar. Gin is essentially vodka that's just been distilled with aromatics like juniper berries 
mm-hmm. to give you like information. Um, but yeah, I always thought it was just called a vodka martini, but apparently it's called a kangaroo. Uh, when you replace the olive with a cocktail onion, it is called a Gibson. Uh, then you have the Vesper, which is what James Bond would drink. And it's made with gin, vodka, and a specific type of vermouth called Kina Lulette. I've never had it. And it's garnished with a twist of lemon peel. So that's a Vesper, which I'm like, okay, sounds, mm-hmm. sounds good. And then a martini on the rocks is served over ice. Martinis are typically mixed with ice and strained into the cocktail glass, but mm-hmm. you can have it on the rocks. So that way, like the ice melts and it like kind of dilutes the liquor a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, if you order it with a twist, you get a thin twist of citrus, usually lemon. And, uh, as any bond fan knows 007 requests it shaken, not stirred. It's request. It's like not required that you stir a martini, but gin does better when it's not manhandled horribly. So stirring it is like gentler on the liquor and mm-hmm. shaking it kind of like stirs up the liquor a little bit. Mm-hmm. So James Bond was a little weird in wanting it stirred. Shaken, you mean? Shirk, shaken, shirken. Mm-hmm. Shirken. Um, shirk, shirked. Shirked, shirked up. But it really is to your taste. I mm-hmm. will t- take a plain old martini with an olive. Mm-hmm. She's easy to please, folks. Easy. Never been easier. Uh, anyway, the martini is a really enduring American cocktail classic, okay? Writer H.L. Mencken referred to the martini as, quote, the only American invention as perfect as the sonnet. That You're is a high praise. I mean, honestly, what else has America given us? But uh, Pogs? That was <laughs> technically the immigrants in Hawaii. Okay. Bringing yeah. from Japan. Okay, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. See, I'm, I'm just facts, man. We invented the martini, but did we real? Did we really do anything else? Hmm. Tell me to sit on for sure. Daylight saving time. Anyway, moving on. Now that we have a bit of history about the martini, I'm going to give a brief overview of why we have cocktails to begin with. So, for the sake of time, I'll define what a cocktail is right now. Like, what if you go to like a really fancy bartender and you're like, "What's a cocktail?" This is the definition of a cocktail. Liquor with any sugar, water, or bitters. That's a cocktail. Anything else is technically a mixed drink, but they usually all fall under the, the like the umbrella of cocktail. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, this is important because cocktails are traditionally thought to be an American invention, another American invention, the cocktail. Um, but that's not to say that mixing drinks originated in America. Mixing drinks mm-hmm. has been around for like literally since alcohol existed, but how did we get to this point? So for as long as people have been drinking alcohol, they've been mixing drinks context. Wine is at least 10,000 years old and beer is older than that. So mixed drinks have been along around for like a long time. Greeks used to flavor their wine with everything from honey to seawater uh, In pagan England, they had a drink called wassail, which is essentially mulled cider with spices. Um, and then the arrival of sugar kind of like shook things up with drinking in medieval times, rich people would flavor their ales with spices and sugars brought from the East. Uh, and then distillation added a new layer of possibilities. Distillation is thought to originate in China as early as 10,000 BC, uh, but it arrived to the West almost 2000 years later. So monks in the aristocracy began producing their own liquors in like at their houses or on their lands. They would steep herbs and spices in their home brewed uh, alcohol. And they would add sugar to kind of help it go down. Grace talks a little bit about monks who make their own stuff in episode 101, Party All Night, where people Mm -hmm. are making champagne, you know? This brings us to punch, uh, which has origins in India, dating back uh, 1,500 years. An Indian punch may have included a spirit called Iraq, sugar, spices, water, and citrus fruit. And then, of course, the Europeans colonized India in the 17th century, which led to the popularization of punch in England. And so in Europe, so you would go to like a British party and they would have a big punch bowl out. And like that is called a mixed drink. It's not technically a cocktail. Mm -hmm. Punches also became popular in America. Clubs and taverns would can kind of concoct their own secret punch recipes. There's a fun story from a club called The State in Philadelphia, uh, which had a punch called the Fish House Punch, 
Apparently it gave George Washington a huge hangover. I thought that was a funny little trinket of information. Um, and then the punch craze led to a craze in general about mixing drinks in the U.S. Writer and bartender and historian David Wondrich describes the cocktail as America's first culinary tradition. So many mixed drinks during the 17th and 18th century were flavored mostly to be sweet with some spice. There's a drink called the flip, which was seen in American taverns around 1690, which was beer sweetened with sugar, molasses, or dried pumpkin. Uh, and then you would kind of add rum or you would add eggs and other spices to like make this drink. It's called the flip, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And they would heat it up by shoving an iron, a hot iron into the cup. Oh my gosh. I'm into that. I know. Um, but it wasn't until the 1798 that the term cocktail was ever used. And it was actually published in a British newspaper. Um, but the definition outlined above the one that I, I just told you of like, you know, sugar, bitters, liquor, mm -hmm. and water, uh, which dictates what it means to be a true cocktail appeared in 1806 in a weekly publication called the balance, which was published in New York. Uh, and like I said, it defines cocktails as a liquor with sugar, water, and bitters. Um, and that brings me to a guy named Jerry Thomas. It always comes also, back to Jerry. Always comes back to Jerry. He's also known as Professor. So you can call him Jerry. You can call him Mr. Thomas. Or you can call him Professor. Again, okay. pick your fighter. Jerry Thomas was born in Connecticut in 1830. He is known for revolutionizing the bartending profession. Uh, he published the first ever bartender's guide in 1862. It's called the bartender's guide or how to mix drinks. And it's essentially an encyclopedia of mixed drinks that became the standard for anybody who wanted to become a bartender. His career was crazy interesting. He started in Gold Rush, San Francisco. He moved to New York. He went to London. He went to New Orleans. Uh, he was a showman for a little bit. He was a gold miner. He was a sailor and most notably a bartender. Mm -hmm. And it was Thomas that brought professionalism to bartending before it was just like a guy at a saloon, mixing up drinks, whatever he could whip up. But Thomas standardized recipes, wrote them down for the first time. And then he was also like a flair bartender. So he would travel and like, you know, you see things on like TikTok or YouTube or Instagram of like bartenders, like doing crazy things with like their bar tools or mixing up crazy colorful drinks using fire. He was mm -hmm. the first one to do that. Um, he toured Europe with a set of solid silver bar tools showing off a very specific drink, uh, his piece de resistance, which was called the blue blazer. Um, and apparently only a handful of people today can like make this drink or know how to make it. It's based on whiskey. So the base of the drink is whis whiskey and boiling water, which he would mm. then flambe. And then he would pour in a stream of roaring blue flame between two silver cups to make this drink. Wow. The blue blazer sounds intense. That's why only a couple of people can do it. It's true. I would try this, but whiskey is tricky for me. It gets tricky. I wish I liked whiskey. Like it's just the, such a cool thing to order, but I know. I don't know if I can. I can't get into it. I know it's so sweet, but it's so like there's like that to it that I'm like yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Another important uh, step to the popularization of cocktails and cocktail culture in America was probably the industrialization, industrialization of one key ingredient. Do you know what that ingredient was? Mm, sugar? Ice. 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 Baby. Oh, I love ice. She loves ice. So I bet you did not know who you have to thank for ice in America. America. I probably don't. Is it someone I would know? No, okay. but you're about to know him. During the 19th century, there was a guy named Frederick Ice King Tudor. What a name. <laughs> Do you have the nickname before or after he invented ice? <laughs> after. Okay. Um, and he was dead set on making ice accessible anywhere and everywhere. Okay. His whole thing was like they would cut huge slabs of ice from frozen lakes up in, you know, the North, he's from Boston. And then he would put the ice on ships and like ship it all over, but it would melt. I don't exactly understand the technology of how he got the damn ice to not melt, but he did mm -hmm. it. He failed a lot, but he eventually succeeded and it made him a billionaire. And so thanks to the ice King, ice was more readily available around the U S 
and the possibilities for cocktails and cocktail consumption exploded. Before then, people were serving, imagine ordering like a mint julep and it being mm-hmm. room like temperature. room temp or like mm-hmm. a martini, which needs to be ice freaking cold. And it's just tepid bath water, like lukewarm bath water. And you're just like, mm. it's not even hot. You know, that's why so many cocktails used to be warm because the, the other option was nothing. It was just room, yeah, mm. room temp, you know, it was like cider drinking like mold cider or like room temp vodka. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So thanks to like the ice explosion and cocktail culture exploding hotels and clubs kind of sprang up hotels like the Astor house or the Hoffman house or the Manhattan club or the metropolitan uh, hotel. These places had elaborate bars with incredible bartenders known for the theatrical methods of mixing drinks, similar to the professor. Um, And towards the end of the 19th century, American style grand hotels and clubs kind of complete with American bars moved over to Europe. So Paris, London, Rome, Um, And they were actually staffed by these famous American bartenders at mostly because like the prohibition happened. So like a lot of bartenders fled and like worked overseas because Mm -hmm. there was, they had no way to have a job in the U S. And though like the prohibition, like put a damper on accessibility to drinking, it didn't stop people wanting to drink. Mm -hmm. Um, It just made harder for them to do so just like the world wars. Uh, So like in a fast forward, Post-World War II, uh, there was a new light shed on the cocktail culture in the United States. Do you know what brought cocktails back into the forefront of American consciousness post-World War II? You should know this. You talked about Um, it. Yeah, it was tiki bars. Tiki bars. Yes, exactly. So specifically the exposure to Polynesian culture in like the Pacific theater, Mm -hmm. people brought that back after World War II and then like the tiki bar culture exploded and it's just like. Grace talks about it. The episode is 38 Easter Island and egg hunt. Um, very interesting. So I'm not going to go into it here, but tiki culture kind of like made cocktails exciting again. And then of course the mid 20th century, uh, there's another surge in cocktail culture. Think mad men, Manhattans, martini lunches, which I didn't know about martini lunches, but apparently martini lunches were like a thing where like you're a businessman and you're like, you drink three martinis for lunch or like when you're out to eat and then you could just go back to work. Sounds about right. I, I'm going to start doing that. And people are like, Chelsea, you can't be drunk at work. I'm like, in the martini lunch. I wouldn't actually do that, it's but I would do it. Thing. I would do it for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, cocktails became less popular in the 60s and 70s, but then the 90s brought life into the movement again, specifically a guy named Dale Gegroff from New York City's famous Rainbow Room. He was famous for bringing back historical values and strict standards to craft to like craft cocktails that had kind of devolved into like sour mixes or prefab bottled cocktails. So instead of like people going to a bar and ordering like a really nice cocktail, people would just like go to their local bookstore, buy a sour mix. And it's like, that's not a real cocktail. This guy was like, no, 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 no. We're going back to the root. We're going to bring our values back. Um, And because of his like dedication to cocktails, there was a sort of like mixology resurgence, which we're still seeing the result of to this day. There tons of famous cocktail bars all over the world. Some famous ones in Chicago right now, Scofflaw, the Violet Hour, the Aviary, the Green Mill, for instance, the Green mm-hmm. Mill, you and I should go to the Green Mill and we'll order martinis together. Okay. Because I'm down. get dressed up, listen to some jazz. And like, that's the best place in the city to have. If you've never had a martini, it's the best place to have your first martini. I've, if I have had a martini before, I don't remember it. So yeah, I need the whole experience. I think. Amazing. Um, I don't know. Do I have time to talk to you about random cocktail origins or should I pass off the well, baton? We started at like 30, you started 30 minutes. So you've been at 20 minutes, 23 minutes. Okay. I don't know. Well, I mean, how, how long is it? I think we can pass. I think we can pass. Okay. But if anybody's interested in the origins of the old fashioned, the cosmopolitan and the white Russian. You know where to find me mm-hmm. because these are some interesting stuff. And I can just tell Grace on the side, not to like blue ball Have our secrets. listeners, but <laughs> um, some interesting origins out there. Messenger. Anyway, that's, that's cocktails. It's cocktails. Now I wish we had a cocktail. I know. We, Instead, I just have ice water. Well, it's almost summertime and I'll make 
I have a really good like Empress Gin, like kind of like lemonade type. Mm -hmm. It's perfect for like sitting outside on a patio in the sun. All right, let's do it. All right, see you there. (laughs) My topic comes from that Cracker Boxes March 17th USA USA Today puzzle. Mm. It's 61 down. Subject for some aspiring bilinguals. Abbreviated. ESL? ESL, yes. But my topic is on bilinguals or (gasps) being bilingual. Oh my God. Are you trying to like make me hate myself? Because I desperately want to be bilingual. Okay. You can be. And I'll talk about that at the end. Okay. Okay? Thank you. It's never too late. Okay. Okay. But hopefully this inspires you because there's a lot of benefits to being bilingual. Uh, Yeah. But I also have to pick a language that people use because I'm like over here on Duolingo learning Irish by myself. until that's part of it is you have to be able to use it and and like it's easy if it's a language where you can watch you know like tv shows and Mm. listen to music Mm -hmm. and stuff like that okay first let's talk about some stats okay about half the world is bilingual in europe 56 of the 56 percent of the population is bilingual (sighs) at least Mm -hmm. Um, in some countries the percentage is higher 99 percent of luxembourgers and 95 percent of latvians speak more than one language There's also countries that have multiple official languages. On the other hand, only around 20% of the U.S. is bilingual. But the number is rising. Since 1980, there has been a 140% increase of children speaking a second language at Mm. home. Mm -hmm. Um, And sorry to our listeners that don't live in the U.S. I'm talking a lot about being bilingual in the U.S. That is what it is. Yeah. Stats also depend on age. So this kind of surprised me, but. 43% 43% of 18 to 29-year-olds speak a second language compared to 25% of 30 to 49-year-olds and 22% of 50 to 64-year-olds. Wow, okay. So more and more people are speaking a second mm-hmm. language. Most bilingual Americans reported learning a second language at home rather than at school. In 2010, only 50% of colleges required forward language study down from 67.5% in 1995. Mm. That's like the big difference between mm-hmm. us and Europe. I think in Europe, in you're always learning other languages in school where it's not as prevalent here. Right. And I also feel like, not that it doesn't make sense to learn a language here, but like in Europe, the countries are so close to each other that like, mm-hmm. there's so much more opportunity for you to need to speak multiple languages. Whereas like you could live in middle America your entire life and you travel the distance of Europe and still you're in America and they speak English. I'm not, not like to make yeah. an excuse, but like it makes so much sense that it's a priority in Europe. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, okay. 55% of bilingual Americans speak Spanish, which I don't think is a surprise. 17% speak French and 10% speak German. Hmm. What is the benefit of being bilingual? Tell well, me. It's really good for your brain. So according to takelessons.com, bilingual children outperform children who only speak one language in problem-solving skills and creative thinking. Children, children who took four years of foreign language classes on average scored 100 points higher on each section of the SAT compared to those who took half a year or less of a foreign language. Wow. Numerous studies have found a link between bilingualism and creativity, with research suggesting that bilinguals enhanced executive functioning, which we'll talk about later, and experience with multiple cultures contribute to their creativity level. Hmm. Studies have also shown that being bilingual may slow down cognitive declines from aging and delay the onset of Alzheimer's for five to six years. Wow. Studies also show that bilingualism can improve your ability to focus and perform mental tasks, as well as make you better at remembering lists and sequences. And there Hmm. is like a scientific reason for this. Hmm. Um, Professor of Applied Linguistics at Lancaster University, Panos Athanasopoulos says, quote, learning a language is beneficial because you're not just learning another set of grammar rules and vocabulary. You're also learning a new way of thinking. It is a window into another culture and often a mirror into yours. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's look more into why this is. Okay. It's, I find it very interesting. Um, this information is from an article on Dana.org called the cognitive benefits of being bilingual by Viorica Marion, PhD and Anthony Shook. Um, Research shows that when a bilingual person uses one language, the other one is quietly active at the same time. Hmm. For example, there's been research studies that track the eye movements of bilingual people. So an example would be a Russian English speaker would be asked, pick up a marker. 
their eyes would look at a stamp because the Russian word for stamp is marka. So even though they're thinking in English, the Russian is still like working in the background mm. of their brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is called co-activation. Basically, your brain is constantly comparing the multiple languages that it knows. Sometimes this causes issues, like it might make a speaker slower to name a picture and also increase tip of the tongue situations where it's like they know the word, they just like can't, um, you know, can't get it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are the benefits we talked about. So a bilingual person's brain is constantly keeping balance between the two languages. It relies on executive functions to do this. And the constant practice of doing this strengthens the control mechanisms of the brain. So for example, there's a famous cognitive test that you may have seen on a poster in school um, when you were like in high school, I did. It's called the Stroop task where people see a word and are asked the name to name the color of the word's font. So for example, it could say red, spell out red, but the color of the word is brown. And so you have to say brown, even though you're reading red. <gasps> yeah. The ability to ignore competing perceptual information, i.e. ignore the spelling of the word and instead focus on the relevant aspects of what you're being asked, which is the font color, is called in inhibitory control. Bilingual people often have better inhibitory control, and they are also faster at switching between tasks on the fly, like in research studies where they mm. had them categorizing, categorizing by color and then categorizing by shape. Mm. And they've actually done MRIs to study brain activity of bilingual people. For example, when bilingual people have to switch between naming pictures in Spanish and then naming them in English, they show increased activation in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is a brain region associated with cognitive skills like attention and inhibition. Ooh. Being bilingual also affects the brainstem. For example, when bilingual and monolingual people listen to a simple speech sound, like the syllable duh, they have similar brainstem responses. Hmm. However, when background noise is added, the bilingual people's response is considerably larger, reflecting better encoding of the frequency of the duh sounds. So basically they can hear the duh better, even if there's background noises. And this is closely related to pitch perception. So this boost in sound encoding appears to be related to advantages in auditory attention. I also mentioned that learning a second language improved SAT scores. Hmm. Uh, this improvement in learning is present in babies as, as young as seven months. Wow. So there was one study where researchers taught babies growing up in monolingual homes and bilingual homes, that when they heard a tinkling sound, a puppet appeared on one side of the screen. Halfway through the study, the puppet began appearing on the opposite side of the screen. In order to get a reward, the infants had to adjust to the rule they learned, like they had to start looking at the left side of the screen. Only the bilingual babies were able to successfully learn the new rule. Wow. They're able to like make that switch much faster. Yeah. Um, another article from The Guardian called Why Being Bilingual Works Wonders for Your Brain by Gaya Vince mentions that bilingualism can also offer protection after a brain injury. A recent study of 600 stroke survivors in India showed that cognitive recovery was twice as likely for bilinguals as for monolinguals. Wow. The article also talks about studies that show how learning two languages can change your worldview. I'm going to do quotes from this article because they explain it better than I can. Sure. But mm -hmm. Okay. In one experiment, English and German speakers were shown videos of people moving. English speakers focus on the action and say a woman is walking or a man is cycling. German speakers, on the other hand, have a more holistic view and will include the goal of the action. So they might say in German, a woman walks towards her car or a man cycles to the supermarket. Part of this is due to the grammar of the two different languages. So unlike German, English has the ing ending to describe actions that are ongoing. This makes English speakers much less likely to assign a goal to an action when describing an ambiguous scene. Mm. When he tested English-German bilinguals, however, whether they were action or goal-focused depended on in the country where they were tested. So the bilinguals were tested in Germany. They were more goal-focused. They were like the woman's walking to the grocery store. Mm. But in England, they were action-focused no matter which language was Interesting. Used. In the 1960s, one of the pioneers of psycholinguistics, Susan Irvin Tripp, tested Japanese-English bilingual women, asking them to finish sentences in each language. She found the women ended the sentences very differently depending on which language was used. For example, when my wishes conflict with my family, dot, 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 was completed in Japanese as it's a time of great unhappiness, but in English it was I do what I want. Another example was real friends should, dot, 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 in Japanese, they said, help each other. And in English, be frank. Mm. From this, Irvin Tripp concluded 
that human thought takes place within language mindsets and that bilinguals have different mindsets for each language. An extraordinary idea, but one that has been borne out in subsequent studies. Many bilinguals say they feel like a different person when they speak their other language. I feel like, I mean, I've I totally that believe that. I, mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends that speak Spanish and just mm-hmm. other languages. And they often say like their quote, real personality isn't what there's, isn't how they are in English. Mm-hmm. And not that to say that like their personality when they're speaking English isn't real. It's just different than their personality than when they're speaking Spanish, for instance, or whatever mm-hmm. their native language is. And I was always like, like, I think your personality is loud and clear, but I guess I don't know because <laughs> I don't speak Spanish. Yeah. It's so interesting to think about how, like, if you learn a different language, you're kind of opening yourself up to you're kind of just like broadening the way that your mind works because like the German language is much more goal oriented. So you mm-hmm. just think about things differently. Right. Um, super interesting. I mean, even like structure, I feel like I'm not sure if you're going to talk about it, but like the way language is structured, I think as well, like mm-hmm. what comes first in a sentence versus what comes last in a sentence varies from language to language, which can then like be indicative of a culture's entire mindset, you know, yeah, exactly. individualism versus collectivism, that kind of idea. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about this, but I saw in my research, like someone was saying that hunter gatherers, like early humans probably spoke multiple languages because languages just change depending on like which region they were in and they mm-hmm. would be switching um, among all of them. And mm-hmm. they were like, what if monolinguals are like not living up to their full potential because they only know one language? Like what if the human brain is meant to know multiple languages? <laughs> uh. You know, I definitely am meant to know more than one language, whether or not I, I allow, whether I, I allow myself to have the discipline is to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to talk about another uh, mm-hmm. aspect of being bilingual in America. This is from an article on WashingtonPost.com called Half of the World is Bilingual. What's our problem by Jay Matthews? So in 2018 in New York, a restaurant customer threatened to call ICE on the staff if they didn't stop speaking Spanish to one another. In Montana, a border patrol agent demanded the ID of two American citizens chatting in Spanish at a gas station. 22% of Hispanics in the U.S. said that someone had criticized them for speaking Spanish, and 20% had been told to go back to their home country. Being bilingual is one of those things where if you're white or rich, then it's cool, but if you're not, then it's looked down upon. Of course, yeah. With more young people speaking a second language at home and the immense benefits that it offers, not just cognitively, like we talked about, but also just as far as like working, traveling, meeting Mm -hmm. new people from different cultures, hopefully this perception will start to change. In 2008, an advocacy group called the Seal of Biliteracy, which is an award given to high school students on their diploma. In 2008, an advocacy group created the Seal of Biliteracy. Mm. It's an award given to high school students on their diploma if they show proficiency in two or more languages. Today, it's a, so it came out in 2008, and when this article was written, it wasn't in every state. But today, it's, it's improved in almost all every state. It's under consideration in Alabama and Alaska, and it's in early stages in South Dakota and Wyoming. Mm. Every other state has it. So if you know any bilingual high school kids, make sure they know about it. Yeah. So if you are bilingual in the U.S., be proud of it. I mean, it's a huge deal, I think, to learn yeah. multiple languages. And I don't want to get too far into it, but I feel like there's so many people who in the U.S., like white people who only speak one language, but will like look down at someone who immigrated here and then has an accent. And it's like, they're speaking, they learned a whole new language often at like an older age. Right. And you only know one language and you don't even speak it correctly. And you're not even interested in learning another language. It's just like, how can you be so close-minded? Or it's like, give them some credit. That's amazing that they were able to learn a whole second language. For sure. Like so quickly enough to be able to work in that language. Yeah. For me, it's like a moment of self-reflection of just like, like you can and should do better. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like why it's like, why do we expect people to immigrate here and learn English? Like, why can't we be more bilingual and like make it yeah. easier for people to be anyway, just to say, like, I feel like I have a lot of friends from grad school and I would feel horrible. Sometimes I'd be the only English speaking person in the room. Mm-hmm. And there are times they're like, Chelsea, we literally can't speak English anymore. <laughs> we have to switch. And I'm like, I cannot argue with you for that. I'm sorry yeah, that fine. I'm here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish that I was a better friend. I also feel like people don't realize, like, even if someone is speaking broken English, it's, they still know a lot of English. Like 
I I've never heard... go anywhere and speak broken anything. So yeah. like, yeah. I heard someone say once, I don't know how this like English speaking white lady employs a Spanish um, like caretaker in her home. She doesn't even speak any English. How do they communicate? And I'm like, well, the white lady doesn't speak any Spanish. So they communicate because that lady probably speaks better English than like you're giving her credit for. Yeah. People are just <laughs> so annoying, but okay. Yes. Yes. If you do want to learn a second language, it's never too late. So I'm going to link an article in the details that talks about like, okay, if you took languages in school and you feel like you never learned anything, you're always just like trying to learn grammar and vocabulary and it just never worked. There are other more effective ways to hmm. learn languages hmm. and it's not too late. You might've just been learning wrong. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to link that. Okay. Um, and my, my girlfriend speaks, she's really good at languages and she's trying to learn Spanish now. Um, but she like does all these things that I would have done. Like she got Spanish kids books and we're watching like Spanish TV shows, mm. just more like conversational stuff as opposed to like learning all the grammar rules to be fair. She already speaks French. So I feel like she has a, she has like a leg vocab. But I've learned um, when I was studying abroad in Italy, I never, I did not become fluent in Italian, but I was mm -hmm. able to speak broken Italian. It was the most fluent I've ever been in any language other than English. Mm -hmm. And I was an idiot to come back to America and then immediately take French in college. But that's besides the point. It's neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. One of my professors there was a German woman and she was obviously fluent in English, German and Italian. And she said the way that she learned both English and Italian was through listening to music and mm -hmm. reading the songs and then like memorizing the songs in the new language and then learning what it meant. And she's like, that's how I learned languages. And it's just like different ways to engage with the language. I've also mm -hmm. heard like pick a movie that, you know, like the back of your hand, Harry Potter, for instance, like the first Harry Potter mm -hmm. I could recite like, with the back, like with like not even thinking about it, put it in mm -hmm. a different language, have the dub on, have the subtitles on like different things like that, like to engage with something that, you know, mm -hmm. in order to like learn the language a little bit more. Yeah. Um, exactly. You I watch so much K drama, so many K dramas. Mm -hmm. I'm not fluent at all, but I have so much vocabulary just from watching two years worth of K dramas every single day. Mm -hmm. So much of that vocabulary is like embedded in my mind now that like, there are times when like, I almost say something or like, like exclaim in the way that they would exclaim or like use a word that they might use if they're feeling like exasperated or something. And it's just like the exposure, I think too, mm -hmm. um, makes it like, I don't know. It's, it's like, instead of it being like this foreign thing, like you can't even think about like thinking in Spanish, if the more you're, you know, connected to it or exposed to it, the closer it is to grab when the opportunity mm -hmm. to speak arises. Well, one of a really interesting research study that I read, I found in my research was um, a guy who made up a completely fake language and he's kind of like testing people to see like mm. how easily people can pick up on new languages. And mm. in the test, like basically he described it as like, they showed different types of snowflakes and had like different words. And when you're watching it, you had to like, remember, be like, okay, this is the word for snowflake. This is the word. So sounds very complicated. And again, it's like completely fake language. But he said that the people who do better on it are the people that don't care. Children do really well on it because they're just like kind of absorbing mm, it and mm -hmm. not thinking about it too hard. Obviously, like you can't just, you know, not think about things. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of people that are bilingual mm -hmm. in the K-pop group that I really like, there are members that speak upwards of five to seven languages. Mm hmm. And they often do like game shows or challenges where they have to exhibit their language skills. And there is one example where there's one member that is fluent in like six or seven languages. I can't remember how many. And he is given the task where he has to, in order to move on to the next step, he has to recite tongue twisters in every language that he knows without oh messing up. And it's like Thai, Mandarin, Cantonese, English. Korean, whatever other languages that he can speak. Mm -hmm. 
and he he does it and but at the end of it he's like my brain hurts <laughs> so bad it's also funny to watch like in this group there's members from china and they speak you know mandarin some speak cantonese you've got mm-hmm. members from korea that speak various dialects you've got members from germany canada um thailand and like to, when you get them all in the room together they're speaking an amalgamation of all of those languages mm-hmm. and sometimes they're like you forget that i only speak cantonese i can't understand mandarin <laughs> so you can't use mandarin with me and they're like i'm sorry i can't think in cantonese right now and it's i'm like damn y'all are impressive yeah the mental gymnastics to be, of that <laughs> yeah i just want to be fluent in spanish i feel like i speak like no. one and a half languages that's amazing though yeah Almost be proud there. But you have to put it like you do have to put effort into it and time and Mm -hmm. do it every day. And I think that's the thing is like, I will go through periods of time. Like I went through months, like almost a full year of learning Irish Mm -hmm. because I thought it was fun and it was fun. Um, It's hard though because you you can't use it. I can't use it. It's not accessible. No, but it was funny because I was able to have like a three sentence conversation with our Irish friend who Mm -hmm. also learned Irish when he was in school. Um, And then I just like, and then it's like the daily life t- takes over. You don't meet your quota and then it kind of falls by the wayside and then mm-hmm. whatever. An interesting thing about Irish though, going off of like m- mindsets of like the culture, there is no word for no in Irish. Interesting. I'm like, okay, so how do you say no then? You know, I need no. I need no. I have boundaries, people. Yeah. Anyway. Right. Oh well, my God. Am I going to download Duolingo now? She might. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Sad news. We won't be here next week. We won't. Oh. Uh... Oh. Anyway. anyway. Um, <laughs> but we'll see you in two weeks. So use that time to learn a new language. Okay. Check back in with us. If you speak a lot of different languages, let us know. Yes. Isn't it called like a polyglot time. when you speak more than three? Is it? I know. I mean, I kept reading multilingual. Mm. If you speak more than two, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know either. I'm not. I'm neither bilingual, multilingual, or a polyglot. So, if you speak four languages, you probably do know the word for it. So, let us know while you're yes. at it. Okay. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at the Good Eve Girls or Instagram at the Good Evening Girls or TikTok at the Good Eve Girls. Come on by, say hello in all of your various languages. We will Google Translate our way through the conversation. We will. Well, and then until famous. next time. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Hasta luego. (laughs) Keep curious out there. Yes.